1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: The British National Health Service, free for all, used to be the envy of the world. And it's one of the biggest political issues in the UK. The electorate's lack of trust in the Conservative Party to protect the NHS is a big negative for the Conservatives. But today, the NHS isn't functioning well. More and more people are going to private care. It's now not unusual for Brits to travel to Turkey or Lithuania to get hip replacements and the like. So should Britain now give up on the NHS and move to a European model of healthcare? And what would that look like? Uh, Dr Gavin Francis has just written a book on the NHS called Free For All, Why the NHS is Worth Saving. Welcome to you. Thank you for having me along, Owen. And, and just just tell us, you've worked in the NHS, so can you just sort of give us a little bit on your
2: experience? Of course. So um, I qualified as a doctor in 1999, so I began my medical training in 1993. I initially became an emergency medicine physician working in uh, ER departments um, in 1999-2000. Then around 2005, I switched to become a primary care doctor. So. I've got 20-odd years of experience of the front doors of the NHS, what are called the front doors, and that they're the front-facing specialties people encounter first, um, emergencies and primary care. And it also means that I've got quite a lot of experience in dealing with all the different specialties within the NHS to, to whom I refer my patients. So I think that's given me a fairly broad overview of the problems of the NHS over the last couple of decades.
1: Yeah. And, and just for people who you know, know vaguely that Britain has free healthcare, how exactly does the NHS work? What is the NHS model?
2: So the NHS model is that nobody should fear illness because of a lack of payment, being able to pay. Um, The the principle of the NHS set out in 1948 by the the post-war government of the UK was essentially to take a system of social insurance whereby everybody would pay in according to their ability to pay, and then everybody could draw from it in times of need. Um, It began because the Minister for Health in that post-war Labour government was... The member of parliament for a region of south wales where there was a miners cooperative which did exactly that all the miners paid in a small proportion of their wages to a fund and then those miners and their families could get free health care and so the the health minister of that period saw what a transformative system it was and that the, the the families were relieved of this great fear of illness and he thought it it really should be rolled out across the the whole country. He said that society becomes spiritually healthier um, if people have, at the back of their minds, the reassurance that if they were to become ill, they wouldn't be penalised. And there was a sociologist of the time, M. T. H. Marshall, summarised that principle, and he said, he said, illness isn't an indulgence for which you should have to pay. It's a misfortune, the cost of which should be borne. By the whole community you, and i think that's a beautiful summary of the principle of the nhs
1: as you say this was um the post-war government and it was a very radical proposal and it, it and it was difficult right to push through i mean this was resisted by doctors uh, and i think and you bevan is the man you're talking about who who did this said he had to pave their palms with gold or something tell us about yeah. how difficult it was to do it well um
2: it wasn't difficult across the board uh, the The British Medical Association in Scotland, for example, needed no persuading. In fact, they were ready to go in 1946, and Bevan asked them to hold on while he persuaded the rest of the country. Um, There was differences in England between the GPs and the hospital consultants. Hospital consultants were very worried about their um, private practice and that being stopped. And that is the context in which Bevan's famous quote about um, having stuffed their mouths with gold, he said, um, when he was asked how he managed to get his proposal past the hospital consultants. So that, that was made in respect to their wish to carry on with their private practice, not with respect to the actual institution of the entire service. Um, he also he had a magnificent line in Parliament where he said some doctors act as if private practice is the glory of their profession. What should be the glory of their profession is that a doctor should be able to see his or her patient without any financial anxiety. And that's a magnificent summary too of how transformative it is if a doctor can sit with a patient without worrying over whether the patient can pay for the treatment that they're going to recommend. It completely changes the dynamic of the entire conversation when the state has taken up Responsibility for that payment, it frees it, it liberates it.
1: Okay, now then, this is the British system, and I just want to—we'll talk more about it at the end, maybe—but just to set the parameters of of, of all this, the, there is a European system, at least many European countries have a system, which is similar in that it, it has the same outcome that healthcare is free for all, but it gets there in a different way. It has insurance, which if you can afford afford it, you pay for it. And if you can't afford it, it's subsidised by the state. Your premium, your insurance premium is subsidised by the state. Uh, So that does achieve the same goals, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It does, although there are uh, variations um, in the way different uh, countries have implemented this. And there is a spread in various European countries that use this between better outcomes or better access to services for those who pay for a higher level of insurance so it's not really an equitable system it should also be said that all those countries spend more on health as a proportion of their national spend it's just that people who are earning more they pay for higher levels of premiums they pay for added levels of service and so ultimately more money ends up going into the system than has traditionally been the case in the UK. So you could argue, I suppose, that what is happening now with a crisis in funding of the NHS over the last 13 years is not that people have lost faith in the idea of a national health service or that everybody pays to the government and then the government pays the service, is that gradually what seems to me to have weakened over the last 13 years is the principle that the the rich should should subsidise the healthcare of the poor. Um, and so there are some voices who would rather see a system whereby if you're a very wealthy person, you do get access to a higher level of, of health care than if you are a poor person. And that's the principle that Bevan was very um, keen to put an end to. He said commercial principles are seen at their very worst in healthcare, care. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly I would agree with that. It may also be that there's a weakening of the resolve among the rich to subsidize healthcare for the poor but also i wonder if one factor is that over the last few years as we know by several measures social mobility is um has slowed down and it could well be actually that that people who are wealthy and prosperous have less fear than they once did that they might one day become poor or that their children might one day become poor and so it becomes less important for them to make sure there's a system which is really good and robust for the poor. I wonder if that's also a factor in the the weakening of of resolve to stick to the founding principles of the NHS.
1: Okay, but just to explain this for people who are not familiar with the system, I mean, uh, and and we'll get on to solutions, as I say at the end, but just to sort of spell this out, in the UK, if you're a rich family... You can use the NHS, and if, for instance, you had a car accident or something like that, you'd almost certainly end up in the NHS system. The emergency services are famously good. You would you would get looked after, and you know you get pretty good treatment, uh, free. Uh,
2: but well, you you paid for it. You, you paid, paid for it
1: through, it. Your through t- the higher taxes no, you sure. pay
2: because you're wealthy. Yeah, that's
1: right, and you'd have paid more than anyone else. that's true. Uh, but you know, on the extra services which you're saying are available to some European. Uh, consumers who pay higher insurance premiums to get extra services i mean that would also be true in the uk and that there is a private sector here and and you know if you come from a wealthy family you might choose on probably not a car accident but some yeah, maybe a hip replacement uh which can be planned and so on to go to a private supplier and get a better service in terms of you know better beds better food
2: better this better that yeah well i would i would stop you on a couple of those points first of all The way it works in the UK, because the NHS has traditionally been so good, is that private healthcare has evolved in a quite an odd way in the UK compared to other countries. Uh, For example, you're much more likely to have private insurance between the ages of 30 and 64. Now, as a primary healthcare doctor, I can tell you those are exactly the years in which you're least likely to need healthcare. So I spend most of my time seeing children. Under the, under the age of 10 or 12, or people over the age of 65. And um, these are exactly the groups of people that health insurance companies are less interested in because they don't have um, income.
1: And just uh, just to explain that, the reason that that age group would be covered is that it com- quite often comes as a benefit with a sort of high-paying yeah, job, a good job, yeah.
2: It comes with their, their employment. So um, that's one factor. So, so health insurance coverage in the UK is strongest precisely in those years it's least needed. The other thing um, with private insurance cover in the UK, because traditionally the NHS has been so good, is that um, it's been often argued by myself and by many other doctors who see the, the effects, and I try to pick out a few examples for this in my book, that the private healthcare as it's practiced in the UK often offers poorer outcomes and poorer standards than the National Health Service. It's less regulated. It's less prone to stick to guidelines. It's more prone to treat on the basis of demand rather than the basis of best practice. And also, we've got quite a startling situation in the UK whereby if you have a procedure done in a commercial sector and that procedure goes wrong, quite often you're then pushed back into the, the government health service to fix the problem so i've had numerous experiences of this over my years as a primary care doctor where i've seen somebody go into the private sector treatment hasn't gone well uh, there's been negative outcomes perhaps even infection or complications and then the the government system is asked to mop that up because that person has of course also been a taxpayer but these are fallouts of procedures that often wouldn't have been recommended within the nhs so it's very very complicated you know there are small hospitals in the uk whereby if you suffer a cardiac event they phone 999 they phone um, for an nhs ambulance to come and take the patient from their small private hospital to a local nhs hospital because the standards there for managing an acute coronary event are so much better so It's really very, very complex in the UK. Very different, for example, from Italy, which has got a sort of patchwork of different kinds of health institutions. Um, France even too, where co-payments make up a large supply of the way people access different kinds of healthcare. Netherlands too. Many other countries, for example, you pay to have a primary care consultation. Uh, Whereas here so far, traditionally, traditionally they've been free.
1: Uh, I take all those qualifications. The point I was trying to make is, particularly for people listening in America, is there's quite a lot of coverage in America saying that if a drug, for example, is not approved for NHS use, and there's a very good system here for establishing which drugs should be provided, you know, there's a very rational, scientifically-based, evidence-based system for doing that, uh, but that if you've know you you've got a rare kind of cancer that's extremely expensive to treat, uh, you may not get the drug on the NHS. There are such cases. Uh, and in the US... It is often said by right-wing lobbyists who are trying to defend the health system there that that means you die, whereas the reality in the UK is that if you can afford it, which obviously most people can't, uh, you could get that drug, that very expensive cancer-treating drug that it might extend life for a couple of years or something, for, for, you know, £40,000, £50,000 a year, and you can pay for it and get it, right? That's the only point I was trying to make, is that wealthy families can do that here.
2: Uh, yeah, still, absolutely yeah, they can. Yeah. And it should also be pointed out um, that in the US I've read numerous accounts of people who thought they had good health insurance and then they become ill in some way, develop cancer, or develop something where which needs um intensive treatment and they discover actually that their insurance doesn't cover everything they need. That even scans, never mind chemotherapy, require substantial co-pays because nobody can read the tiny print of every insurance policy, and uh, and think about that in terms of every potential outcome that they might suffer. So um, there are a lot of problems too with the U.S. system, even when you think that you have good healthcare coverage. No, sure. So
1: so now let's just get on to the state of the NHS today, uh, which is pretty desperate. I mean, I'll just give. Uh, a few examples from my immediate family. 96-year-old mother had to wait uh, 12 hours in A&E in very distressing circumstances. friend last week had a suspected heart attack, uh, waited so long in A&E, over eight hours, that he actually self-discharged. Uh, and a cousin in the village I live in who needed a new hip went to Lithuania to get it because he just couldn't bear the two-year wait uh, on the NHS. So, I mean, it is catastrophically awful. Uh, why has that happened And how deep is the crisis?
2: Um, It has happened because the resources going into the NHS have not kept pace with what either politicians or the electorate have expected of it. So as long ago as 2017, the CEO of NHS England, a man called Simon Stevens, said um, the NHS is no longer funded adequately to do what is being asked of it. That was 2017. So um, there's good evidence from the King's Fund, for example, that now for many years, um, capital maintenance budgets intended for the maintenance of the bricks and mortar of the NHS have been redirected into supporting frontline services because the resources going into the NHS have been so insufficient. So we now have many, many years of backlog just of maintenance bills of the bricks and mortar. So the answer really is quite simple, and it's just, it's money. And other countries are finding ways of coping with the added expense of an aging population, increasing frailty. You mentioned your 96-year-old mother on a trolley for 12 hours. I mean, it's just, it's just terrible that we haven't actually maintained the level of services that we need to celebrate having such a magnificent outcome for humanity as such an aging population. You know, people are living longer now than they've ever lived in the history of humanity. And that should be a cause for celebration. But of course, it has costs. The average 85-year-old costs the NHS or costs the taxpayer, however you wanted to put it in inverted commas, five times more than the average 30-year-old. The average 65-year-old costs the NHS two and a half times more than the average 30 year old now we have many 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 more people living past 85 than we used to have even 20 or 30 years ago so if you imagine every one of those people who lives beyond 85 is costing the taxpayer five times more than an adult who's paying taxes that is going to cost money so other countries are, are, are trying to address this with various kinds of ways of raising that money through insurance, yes, and through different kinds of taxation. But I think what's happened over the last 13 years is there's been a real reluctance, as you mentioned in your introduction by the governing party, to try to explore those measures of raising further revenue to support that ageing population. Um, they have not kept pace with what the voters demand of it. Well, and, yes, I mean, and that it, needs to yeah. change.
1: Well, yes, I mean, but of course, the demand, the voters also demand low taxes, and, and, and that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, the, the,
2: the. But is uh, it too much to ask to have some honesty, intellectual honesty, in that? That's not how have politics have works,
1: is it? I mean, it's not a rational a business. I mean, the re- politics is not rational. Democratic politics is not rational. And we we have a situation where people want the health care but don't want to pay the taxes. So, I mean, it it, 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 I mean, I agree. I understand that the Conservative Party have, you know, been more reluctant to raise taxes for this than than other parties in the UK. But but you could argue that other European countries have worked out a way of raising the required revenue, uh,
2: whereas we haven't. So it sounds to me, though, with that, Owen, is that you're arguing, yes, that, that we have reached a point where wealthy people are no longer willing to subsidise the healthcare of the poor.
1: Well, I don't know if it's, it's just rich people who don't want to pay taxes. It's everyone, isn't it? I mean, the, the reason democratic politicians don't put taxes up
2: is because they think it's unpopular. Um, sure. So I, my argument is that at the moment, the crunch point is being put on doctors and nurses to constantly apologise for the lack of resources that have their origins in political decisions. So now we're having a crisis of recruitment in both nursing and medicine. We've got a third of junior doctors leaving the NHS to go and work in Australia and New Zealand where they'll be better remunerated and better supported. We have 43,000 nursing positions vacant in the UK because the job is becoming impossible because the voters and the politicians want a level of standards that they're not prepared to resource adequately. So the clinicians are constantly having to apologise For the impossible situation of telling patients you can't have what you would like because there isn't any money. Now, surely a government who seeks to fulfill the expectations of voters has to find a way of addressing this. But at the moment, what we've got is a government in power who keeps trying to pretend that it's not happening, that the crisis isn't that bad, that nurses are just moaning that doctors are complainers, that they're overpaid. And that is not really helping our recruitment uh, crisis, and it's not getting to the root of the problem, which all of us would like to see resolved. Clearly, some kind of compromise needs to be made. And at the moment, I'm not seeing anybody making a move towards effecting that compromise of giving people a level of service that they are happier with and a level of taxation that the economy can support. Just on the, um,
1: the the extent of the British shortfall on spending, I, was, I found it surprisingly hard to get what you'd think would be a very easy number to get just preparing for this interview. I was just trying to understand what the UK pays, let's say as a percentage of GDP and, and what others pay. Uh, it's and very complicated. Said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not as easy as you think, but I mean, I have got some you know quite out of date figures, but uh, they were suggesting that the UK pays something like three thousand pounds. That's you know uh, probably getting up towards four thousand, well, three and a half thousand dollars, and the US is more than double that uh, uh, per per head of population and the european countries yeah, right. are a sort of yeah not much more actually but they mean 10% 20% more uh, than the uk is that about it now would you think
2: yeah that's about right i mean it's made very complicated by the fact that different countries um calculate the level of social care differently some of them include it in health figures some of them don't some places some countries have a very blurred line between social care and health care, which can make it quite difficult to extricate exactly how much is being spent where. But, you know, I'm not a statistician or somebody who makes policies. Um, but when I, so I, I have to trust uh, people who spend all their time thinking about these kinds of things. And, you know, the King's Fund, for example, has said that in order to match European average funding, we now need 40 billion a year extra funds in the NHS
1: 40 billion pounds around 50
2: billion dollars a mean, year yeah additional funds to keep pace with our European neighbours
1: that's the to, bit to, I have difficulty with because it seems to me that whether it's a conservative uh, government or the, the main opposition party here is the Labour party who you who have had a record of defending the NHS uh, and financing it uh, I can't see either party raising that kind of money it's just too much
2: yeah well my argument that i set out in the book Owen is that the principles with which the service was set up are sound they're sound and they have at times led the nhs to be the most admired healthcare system in the world in terms of its outcomes and in terms of its value for money the idea that the nhs is a wasteful um, or bloated with managers is very untrue and we know actually that insurance-based systems have far more levels of management and um, less money going through directly to clinicians than our own system. So the question I want to put to both politicians and voters is essentially that, are we a rich country or a poor country? If we're a relatively rich country, why is it that we don't have a healthcare system to match? If we want to have a healthcare system to match being a relatively rich country, these are the ways to do it. And giving up on this socialized model of healthcare is not the way to improve outcomes and cost less. We might go down that way in order to improve our outcomes, but it will ultimately cost more. And the question is, do we want to go that way anyway, because we've given up on the idea of the rich subsidizing the poor, or do we think actually the principles with which it was founded are still sound and that we need to find a way to resource it adequately because it will prove cheaper than having an insurance-based system if it's funded adequately.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com/slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Do you have an estimate of how much of the European-based insurance systems? And I agree they all vary, so it'd be difficult to sort of generalize, but you know, is do you have any sense of how much more? Goes into inefficient aspects of that, you know, assessing claims, all the administration that must go with that insurance system and so on, uh, compared to the NHS. Because, I mean, you know, it, it has obvious benefits, which is that it's delivering better healthcare. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> we all want to. No,
2: I don't have a good system. I know yeah. the, the statistic I remember from the American system is that there are three administrators for every clinician. So, the American system is very unusual. Um, It's about 18% of GDP is going into healthcare, and it has very, very poor outcomes compared to most European countries in terms of infant mortality, in terms of access, Um, in terms of, well, there's a whole suite of outcomes in the US, which are poorer than um, in Europe, but about 18% of GDP is going in. I think, the UK—it's quite difficult to get the figures, as you said. I mean, we we have been between nine and ten percent of GDP, depending on how you calculate it. That was pushed temporarily higher during the pandemic because of the huge amount of money spent on dealing with COVID. Um, a lot of European countries that we're talking about—the likes of um, well, Germany is more than eleven. I think it's nearer twelve or thirteen percent. France is about eleven percent. So all of these countries are paying more than us for their health care. How, how much of the bill is going on management and on managing that insurance service, I'm not really
1: yeah. all that sure. Well, you can see why I'm asking, because it, I mean, it seems to me, that, that French example is quite interesting, you know, it's, it, it's let's say UK's 9%, they're 11% of GDP, I mean it's, it's a significant difference, but it's not massive. Uh, and, you know, they would incur higher costs in terms of administration you'd think, because the NHS, you know, as a unified organisation, uh yeah obviously has massive uh, economies of scale and should be in many ways much more efficient uh so it is confusing that the french have better healthcare than the uk this is this is the thing i'm trying to get at is what why isn't it working when that yeah the sum of money involved in the 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 french insurance system doesn't seem so massively different to to ours
2: uh no i think that is massively different 2% of gdp would be absolutely transformative for the nhs Absolutely transformative. And and that's what we saw in 1997, actually, when there was a change of government in this country. And at that time, um, in around 95, 96, it was about 6.3% of GDP went into healthcare, while the European average at that time was 8.5%. And famously, the Prime Minister at that change of government in 97 committed to trying to match the European average. And 6.3 6.3 he he did get up to 8.5 and the NHS during the early 2000s was among the most admired healthcare systems in the world both in terms of its outcomes in terms of its access um, and in terms of its value for money it was it was in an international comparison in the early 2000s it was placed top in the world and so that was only 2% difference in terms of the GDP and it was absolutely transformative. And I began my career in the early 2000s, I qualified, as I said, in 99. And I can remember a healthcare system that was then being consistently assessed as among the most efficient in the world, but also the best value for money with some of the best outcomes in the world. And that's across the board. So that means outcomes for the poor as well as the rich, um, in terms of reducing health inequalities. So that 2% change in the early 2000s was utterly transformative and made the NHS a real beacon for many countries around the world. I can remember visiting primary care physicians from America talking about how um, the UK general practice system was a real inspiration for the rest of the world and how they wished they had a similar system. And essentially, If you look at the graphs plotting the resources going into the NHS, they just started to fall around about 2010, 2011, and they've been falling ever since. And it's fascinating to watch how public satisfaction with the NHS maps almost perfectly onto the resources going into it. So when the resources drop, public satisfaction drops. And the resources are rising, public satisfaction is rising. Because people want access, and access costs money.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very compelling... Uh, point you've just made, because you're talking about the Tony Blair government, and he he did make it a very high priority, and he inherited very long waiting lists in the NHS, and and basically eliminated them through, as you say, very significant spending achieved uh, at a time, and it did. I think it's worth remembering, taking quite a few years of his government, he was in power for ten years to get there, because he needed the economic growth to you know fund it, didn't he? I mean that that's what unlocked it, really, is when Labour were achieving significant growth record uh, year on year on year, it did enable them to, to, you know, nonetheless make a political choice, but it it did enable them to do it.
2: It's not really my job to talk about tax policy. I'm not an expert on that. Um, I don't know how best the government is going to approach raising the kind of revenue that the service needs or whether a new government is going to, as I mentioned earlier, give up on the principles of the NHS, but if they are committed to maintaining a system which is more efficient and has, in many times in its history, been among the most admired in the world, then they have to make it a central priority for the economy again. Um, and I recognise I recognise that a, a businessman might say that I'm biased. I've spent my entire life in healthcare and education. So, of course, healthcare and education are my priorities. For, for government and that's how I tend to use my, my vote is, is thinking about parties that are keen on health and education. Other people can have different pers- priorities, different opinions, and that surely is the function of a democracy. We need to get a sense across the country of what the electorate's priorities are. And my sense now is that things have become so bad within the NHS that it absolutely is a central priority of voters and um, any politician looking to get votes would do well to recognise that that is a central priority for the electorate now is to restore some uh, resources towards the NHS.
1: I I I think you know many people would agree that that's right but do do you think it'll happen? I mean do you think that you know a future government will make cuts elsewhere basically or, or 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 raise taxes to the tune of
2: 40 billion a year? I mean it's a lot. Yeah, I think they will. I think they'll have to, or the NHS is going to collapse. Do you know? Even um, even Margaret Thatcher's government invested in the NHS more heavily than the governments of the last thirteen years. Uh, there was an approximately three percent rise in uh, the level of resource going into the NHS through Margaret Thatcher's tenure because she recognised how popular it was. And, you know, she famously said she would never use the NHS. She had private health care insurance and she didn't want to add to the queue. Um, but even yet, she knew its popularity. She knew that voters loved it. They recognised the justice of its principles. They recognised the importance of having a safety net there if they or their families might become poor. And uh, she consequently backed it. and And I would like to see the same level of of faith in the central place the NHS has in the voters imagination and aspirations uh, among our current politicians okay, a couple of questions um,
1: first of all on uh, management, I was quite interested to hear you uh, say that you know the NHS is well managed many doctors in the system you know, don 't agree with that they think the managers are overpaid and incompetent and and too numerous, and you know it is a problem with running any big Public sector organisation. I mean, I used to work in BBC, which was appallingly managed, and I can certainly say there were too many, and they were overpaid without a doubt. And and I would have thought the same would be true in the NHS. You don't think that?
2: No, and there's hard figures to show it. There's only about two percent of NHS staff are managers, compared to an average across most industries of about nine percent or even ten percent of um, the payroll are managers. So actually, in terms of numbers of of people on the ground, we have. fewer managers than, than most industries. Whether they are paid too much, I don't know. You, um, I, I can't argue that. They would need to make that argument themselves, whether they're paid sufficiently or insufficiently. Um, I want to see, as a clinician, I want to see the maximum amount of resource going into direct patient care that I possibly can. Whether you can do that by paying our already quite diminished number of managers, um, very smaller salaries, uh, I don't know, I would doubt it. We're seeing that at the moment, With there's lots of um, controversy at the moment around about the way um, doctors are managed, particularly with regard to the Lucy Letby case, um, when doctors felt that they wanted to whistleblow and speak out and, and I, felt I should, unable I should, to. I should
1: just explain, this is a nurse in the UK who's just been found guilty of murdering some babies on a, on a, on a ward and the doctors were raising the alarm and and the managers were closing them down and making them apologize to the nurse for accusing her of anything. So that was quite a blow to the reputation of managers.
2: Yeah, it was, it was a blow to the reputation of managers. But similarly, we have a media culture in which um, an absolutely horrendous, awful example of a serial killer is being sort of expanded to essentially, cast shadows over the reputation of lots of other parts of the service and i felt this very strongly as a as a doctor in the the Harold Shipman case which some of your listeners will remember there was a there was a primary care physician um just over a decade ago who who was a serial killer and was killing some of his elderly patients and and the the entire regulation of my profession was transformed as a result of of Shipman because there was this very deep concern that this serial killer actually was Uh, able to carry out um, all these murders because of of weaknesses within the system itself of doctors regulation.
1: Uh, Just one last thought in terms of the British um, experience because the UK now has significant amounts of devolution and uh, the powers have been devolved to governments in Scotland and in Wales in particular the Northern Ireland situation is rather more complicated but in Scotland there's been a government for gosh I don't know 20 years or something, uh, the Scottish National Party government, who are basically uh, much more sympathetic to the NHS, I would think, than than the Conservatives. Uh, Have they done what you are arguing should be done, which is basically raise taxes to produce much more funding for the NHS in Scotland than there is in England or Wales? Uh,
2: They've done it modestly. They're quite um, restricted in terms of what they can do. They obviously don't have power over tax raising anything that's got to do with um the flow of money across borders um they've got a limited ability to raise income taxes and yes i do pay more income tax in scotland uh, than i would if i paid in england and um, but it's of the order of about two percent um, and i would argue actually that though things are bad within the nhs in scotland this book is conducted as a result of many interviews with many of my colleagues who work across the uk because Medicine is such an international profession, and many of my good friends and colleagues are working across the UK. uh, And and things are actually slightly better in Scotland than they are, for example, in England. Uh, One example of that is the degree to which NHS services have been contracted out to commercial providers is much more limited in Scotland than it has been in England, um, particularly after the Conservative Health Minister um, Andrew Lansley introduced uh, introduced an act in 2012 which opened up the NHS much more to private providers but what we're finding now is that in England those services which were contracted out have slowly been dripping back into the NHS either because they were providing very poor standards of care or because um, they turned out to be more expensive for the taxpayer.
1: Right so I mean yeah, I can see that there'd be arguments about how to deliver healthcare. but are the healthcare outcomes in Scotland better than in England then?
2: Not particularly, and that's very complicated, too. Um, And it's quite difficult to disambiguate those outcomes from the degree of poverty and lack of economic growth that there is in Scotland with comparison to the southeast of England. So the part of the UK which has the best economic outcomes is the southeast of England, and it distorts the whole of England's outcomes. If you were to compare, for example, health outcomes in Scotland with those in the northeast of England, you would find them very similar, or with parts of Wales, for example. So we have a lot of diseases, what um, public health specialists call diseases of despair in Scotland because of the many, many years of poor economic growth. Um, There's a lot of problems with alcoholism. There's a lot of problems with drug deaths. Um, We also have a very rural population in Scotland, and we know that rural populations have... Uh, much poorer health outcomes than urban populations for various reasons. They're ageing twice as quickly. There is much more alcoholism rurally and um, access to healthcare services is very poor rurally in Scotland as a far more rural country than England. So it's very complicated. We need an international public health expert to try and tease out the ways in which there's been failures in Scottish policy and the ways in which the outcomes are poorer because of its very... um, uh, by comparison, poorer economic outcomes in England.
1: Yeah, well, it's been a very interesting discussion. I mean, it seems to me, uh, you know, probably both think the NHS is a really good idea, and you're arguing there should be more political will basically to fund it. And I, I, I and I'm worried that just won't be, uh, and that you know the democratic constraints are too difficult, basically. Well,
2: I'm a little bit. Um, I suppose I'm a little bit uh disenchanted or disappointed, Owen, that you have so little faith. In the electorate's willingness to recognise the importance of its principles, and um, and that's what I would like to restore. I would like to encourage people to see the wonder of the system when it works properly. And I close this book with a a beautiful letter, which was written by the founder of the health service, an Iron Bevan. He wrote a a letter to the profession um, the the day before the NHS went live in July 1948, and he wrote this beautiful letter saying that his job was to give us the resources as clinicians that we need to be able to do our job and he said that he wanted it to be a truly national effort it's not a charity it's he said he called it the most ambitious adventure in the care of national health any country has ever seen and he wanted to leave us alone to use skill and judgment without hindrance and to develop a partnership now that degree of idealism shown in 1948 with an almost bankrupt country after six years of war i would like to see that degree of idealism among our politicians today because there's so much disenchantment with politics and if people were able to vote Towards their best aspirations, we might see the kind of transformations that we were able to see back in nineteen forty eight
1: yeah and and um he was a labor politician, and it is widely predicted that Labour will win the next election in the u k that's what the opinion polls show by a very wide margin he is suggesting it might even get two terms uh, so we'll be actually in a very similar position to where we were with Tony Blair when he took over and you know you've made the point he did it uh, and he he did pro- produce the funding. Uh, so I guess, you know, in eight years, nine years from now, we'll know whether his successors at the Labour Party, you know, summoned up the will to do the same thing.
2: Yeah. And I, I don't want to be writing books about this. I want to be writing books, my usual books about medicine and culture. Do you know I've I'm I wrote this book because I can't actually do my job the way I was trained to do it at the moment, because the service around me isn't working properly. And if the service that I was taught to rely on could be restored to a degree that I can do my job, I'll stop talking about this and go and do something else. I'm sorry to disappoint you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for giving us your passion and your explanations of what's going on in, you know, what is a, a, a health system that is of interest around the world. Okay, thank you.